Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And we're very excited to have a returning guest and a brand new guest today. Our returning guest is J.E. Reich. They are a writer and a former weekend editor at Jezebel. Hello, J.E. Hey. Hi. J.E.'s actually an official Scooby, too. I am. (laughs) Three episodes. And we have a brand new uh, guest who's never been here before. His name's Connor Goldsmith, and he is a literary agent at Fuse Literary. Hi, thank you for having me. I told uh, Ian that if I didn't get to do Restless, I was going to actually like strangle him with my bare hands. So that's why I'm finally here. I told him the same well, thing. What that a- sounds hot, though. <laughs> I mean, I've been told. So, you know. But I don't think it's he not meant quite it in a sexy a, way. <laughs> I didn't mean it in a hot way. I meant it in a like, I am Sinea, the first of the ones, and I will kill you in your sleep kind of way. Uh, uh, I say for the record i meant it in a sexy way so we're that's a different podcast yes that that we'll be doing later everyone's getting choked but me he said in a willow voice (laughs) uh there's a certain point on this show where i would happily choke willow too but not connor and i fight about buffy opinions all the time Um, well i yeah it's we 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 very rarely agree on things so this will be interesting actually Don't ruin my second favorite episode for me, Connor. Um, this is my favorite episode oh. of them all. So, oh. uh, but it's also super racist, which we'll get to. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, but before we begin, but before we get there, Connor, tell us your Buffy origin. Yeah, so um, I have like a very deep, weird relationship to this show. So when I this. Uh, so I was born in 1988, so I'm, like, trying to do the math of when I... I was, like, I guess 15 or 16. Um, the fir- the very first episode I caught on TV was 521 The Weight of the World, which is that very weird one oh, where, like, Buffy's having a recurring nightmare about Dawn coming home from the hospital. And, like, meanwhile, Dawn is talking to Glory, like, in alleyways for the whole episode. <laughs> it's, like, a bizarre episode to have seen if you've, like, never seen the rest of the show. Yeah. So I was, like... It was, it was something I wanted. I was like, I was interested in, but I was like, I have to go get the DVDs instead. So I went and got the DVDs and just watched it straight through. And that was when all the seasons weren't out yet. So I was like eagerly waiting for season six and seven to come out on DVD, which was a terrible letdown in retrospect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, so after that, I was like really, really hooked. Um, Buffy was for a long time, my very favorite show. Uh, these days, I actually prefer Angel, which is one of the things that Ian and I fight about. Um, I think Buffy as a show has like aged weirdly for me, but uh, I've seen it like ten times. I taught a class like all the way through. I taught a class uh, on Buffy for two years at Oberlin College, um, and I am like, I my knowledge is like encyclopedic and creepy, and it's one of those things where like people don't want to start talking to me about it because it never ends. So here I am to like subject you all to it for an hour in your ear holes. Uh, so I brought Connor on to torture me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gonna be fun. We're gonna have a good, we're gonna have a good time. I promise. Um, that that is a really weird first episode. It's uh, it was I was like, what is the show? Because I'd had friends who had told me I should watch it. Yeah, and they were right. But like to just catch that on like the WB in reruns was like a very strange. Yeah, like out of context. Like what the hell does that mean? Or it wasn't even reruns. Maybe at the time it was like what was airing. I don't know because it would have been like a year or two before. Anyway, doesn't matter. The point is, yes, it was a very strange introduction. Like CGI Glory's face morphing into uh, <laughs> a different face and all of that. You know. So. Um, Matthew, would you like to start us off? 
Oh, sure. I mean, the very beginning isn't that, um, you know, explosive. Nothing really happens. But if anyone wants to talk about Joyce meeting Riley for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought that was kind of a funny thing to do because it shows how, like, irrelevant. It shows how much they had stopped thinking about things like that, that they have to just they they clearly were like, oh, shit. Joyce hasn't met him, like, we have to just reference that really quickly, you know what I mean? <laughs> it also serves as a really great, like, entryway to the, the theme of the episode, or, like, assen- like essentially... Um, Buffy hasn't been thinking about Joyce either, so it makes sense that the writers haven't, you know what I mean? But, 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 it's, also, but it's also about uh, Buffy, like, this, the first layer trying to separate Buffy from, uh, from her peer, like, from her friends, Absolutely. from her family. Um, and so it's interesting that we get a sense of that like uh, that disconnect at the very beginning and it sets up the I think it does set it up for the rest of the show what I uh, it reminded me of like I remember I saw an interview once with Christine Sutherland where she was like part of the reason Joyce isn't in season four very much is because Christine Sutherland I believe had moved to Italy for a while like for something and for some reason and that like she had sort of been talking to Joss about like maybe we just write Joyce out and he was like no you really have to come back for season five like you really, really do. <laughs> um, and so this, I think this episode was also in part about them like sort of reintroducing Joyce to the audience because if you were someone who had started watching in season four, because um, it was a, a, you know, a live airing show, people picked it up in the middle in all kinds of places. Joyce had not been a factor. And since she is such a factor in season five with Dawn coming in, leading up into the body, you have to remember, it, it was sort of a remember me thing, which I think that certain parts of this episode uh, function as sort of intentionally. Well, just as a TV, I mean, I think it's more just like, because the show is really good at, at recognizing who's in the room and who's not in the room and like just having to introduce characters who may or may not know each other. Right. Um, so I actually like they did that because it's like a continuity thing. And exactly. Buffy, for a show that was on in 99, in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, Buffy actually has some pretty okay continuity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah until the, the, quite honestly, until season seven, like the continuity is pretty tight. And then season seven, there's just so many holes. But in these early seasons, I think they really clearly like had a series Bible that they were looking at and trying to keep everything straight, which is nice. My, you know, I never noticed, I think, until probably when I rewatched the series in college that Restless takes place, like, only hours after defeating Adam. I had never oh, really yeah, thought like, about right, it. Oh, yeah, like, right, that night, yeah. yeah. One thing I thought was interesting in the pre... So, because I watched it all on DVD from, like, the beginning, um, I didn't have previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer as, like, a thing. In my, mm-hmm. when I when I viewed it ever because I've watched it like ten times but it's only ever been on my like at this point rickety like old DVDs, <laughs> um, but so I rewatched for this uh, episode and I'm I'm in the middle of a move so all my DVDs are like packed up in a box so I watched it on Hulu and it had the previously on and I was actually struck by how much the previously on for this episode kind of ruins the mystery of what's happening because it like shows you the whole ritual to summon the first layer and shows you like the spirit, mind, heart, hand, tarot cards and the whole thing. And I was like, Oh, cause when I watched this the first time I was, I felt proud of myself when like along with them, I figured out what was happening. Yeah. Right. Also, um, I, wanted to, so... I wanted to point out just like a side note. So I have a lot of notes 
I actually found an old DVD player that I... I haven't had a DVD player in, like, forever and had to go to Best Buy and, like, buy a cord to connect it to my TV so I could watch <laughs> the episode today. I wanted to rewatch it on the DVD with Joss's commentary. Mm, um, I've never done that because I find commentary tracks annoying, so I, I bet that that's interesting. <laughs> I always... I, I've, wa- I've watched all the commentaries for all the episodes that have them, but I only watch it after watching the episode like i would never have oh, that course, like, course, first yeah. One. yeah yeah like i i watched it i mean this is one of my favorite this is my second favorite episode so i've watched it a billion times what's but I, your number one favorite i know it's cliche but it's hush oh yeah i mean i i i like hush just it's so different that i can't even think of it as like an episode above uh, in fair. some ways you know what That's i mean fair. like it's such, a, it's such a singular like my fave like if you by that standard like my favorite episode is probably the body but like am i ever gonna watch the body like for fun no you oh, know yeah. what I, mean? I always i always have trouble <laughs> listing the body because it's like i don't want to watch it but it's, it's good. the best episode but i for don't sure, watch but it. it's not one that i like ever want to watch and i've seen it like six times because I taught a class and that's enough yeah, yeah. for me. That one is a go-to for me, but I think that's, I mean, it's also indicative of my taste. Like, I watch Mindhunter a lot. <laughs> right, no, I get you, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's, um, it's easier for me on Angel where I'm like, reprise, that's my favorite episode. Like, it has everything, it's fun, it has the big elevator scene, like, etc. Whereas with Buffy, because they have these, like, weird experimental episodes, because every now and then Joss was like, I'm making an art movie, like, in the middle of the season. <laughs> Um, it's hard to, like, because my favorite, then it's, like, my favorite, like, Buffy episode that's an actual episode of Buffy is probably, like, Passion, you know what I'm saying? But in terms of, like, these, like, one-offs, it's just hard to, like, map them onto a top ten chart. Yeah. I'm going to move us along because we're not yeah, even on the dreams Yeah, move us along because we're not even to the dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and they have a lot to break down, so I'll probably say that, like, even if you have a lot to say, let's try and, like... He should keep it streamlined. <laughs> Matthew's good at keeping us on track. <laughs> um, so the first person to have their dream is Willow, and the dream opens with Willow and Tara, and Willow is painting a lesbian love poem on Tara's back in yeah. Greek. Yeah, I actually um, I looked up the poem itself, and considering like uh, Willow's card in a previ- in that previous episode we were mentioning. Um, is spirit is really interesting uh, to see what what's it called? It's him to him to Aphrodite. Is it's Sappho one. I was an ancient Greek major, <laughs> so um, I'm sorry. Like I'm not. I, I actually just read this poem at my best friend from college who taught the class right. with me. So, and it uh, I just read this poem at her wedding. It's in in the Greek. It's um, it's the first Sappho fragment we have. It's the longest Sappho, and it is the, it is an address to Aphrodite. Yes. But the but the um, the term spirit comes up a lot, which is what I was trying to get at. So it's like iridescent. So I have the poem. So it's like iridescent throned Aphrodite, deathless child of Zeus, wild weaver. I now implore you, don't. I beg you, lady, with pains and torments, crush down my spirit. And so um, it goes on. Um, and the last uh, the last verse is, come to me once more and abate my torment. Take the bitter care from my mind and give me all I long for, lady. In all my battles, fight as my comrade. So it's interesting how, with that poem, you, you tie it, of course, the, the obvious thing is the spirit tarot card, which, I mean, Willow, out of uh, out of the four of them, is considered the spirit of the Scooby group. Yeah, um, right. But then you have, so you have, obviously, her feelings for Tara, especially in the last verse, like, wrapped up in that. Um, and, of course, her anxieties um, about coming out, which, which we delve into later in the dream. But the, then you have the line, fight is my comrade which sort mm-hmm. of ties all back in with, with Scoobies. So I thought that was a really great choice. And it's also super obscure because, I mean, 
unless you read ancient Greek or I guess, I, I think it's ancient Greek that she's writing in, right? Not yeah, modern. Yeah. So it's like, unless you have that knowledge, um, then it's going to be something that you're like, uh, that is not going to be necessarily overt, which I think speaks to like the, the like precise detailing that goes into this episode. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's, I think it's really interesting. So even in the book Slayers and Vampires, which is like an oral history of Buffy, Joss says about this episode that he was basically sitting down to write a 40 minute tone poem, um, which I do appreciate. And then in the commentary for this episode, he says that like he references that poem in the script, but like he didn't expect the art director to li- and the li- art director literally wrote out almost the whole thing on mm-hmm. her back. And like he didn't. No, ex- I can read it on her back, which yeah. is pretty impressive because it's painted. <laughs> yeah, and like he didn't expect. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> like it's very well done. <laughs> I think that's kind of cool that like, because it is very like Lynchian and like poetic. Talk about Lynchian. I mean, this is where the red curtain motif starts. Yeah. That like is the all of the whole of Willow's dream. And Whedon claims that he wasn't like influenced by Twin Peaks in this episode, which is a load of bullshit. Um, <laughs> let's just put that like let's just put that to bed immediately. I mean, basically, it's a womb symbol, obviously, which it also is on Twin Peaks. But like every time she's alone with Tara in this dream, like she's swathed in these red curtains that look exactly like the red curtains from twin peaks which also has these long tone poem segments famously where they all just sit around in red curtains and say things to each other that don't really make sense <laughs> um, uh, can i just say i was uh so i've been listening to janelle monet a lot as we probably all have been uh, <laughs> and uh i just all all i want for hanukkah this year all i want is for some fan to take the song Pink and just play that loop of her going through the curtains over and over and over. <laughs> that is my one wish. Anybody listening, please send it to me for Hanukkah. Thank you. That would be pretty great. So, but before we before we move on, just I love that scene with her and Tara for a couple of reasons. Um, one is is the Sappho poem, which I actually have a Sappho tattoo on my back. So it's oh. one of those things where um, it's not the same poem, but. Uh, obviously this stuck, this image stuck with me. Um, and I think that, uh, what I love about this scene is that it initiates the theme throughout, um, the episode that is made explicit in Buffy's dream that Tara, whenever she appears in this dream is not actually Tara. Um, Tara is a guide and of all the dream people, uh, you know, cause the characters, who are the dreamers, they talk to each other and they're clearly the real people most of the time. But the other people are figments of their imagination. Whereas Tara, except for the scene in the back of Xander's ice cream truck, and there's a signifier there that we'll get to, but other than that instance of Tara, every time Tara pops up in this dream, Tara is aware of what's happening and is talking to the characters directly as like sort of an emissary or an aspect of the first slayer. Yeah. So, um, What's interesting here is that Tara talks a lot about, it's the opening words of the dream about how it's weird that she hasn't told us her name yet. Um, And Willow assumes she's talking about the cat, but she's actually talking about Dawn. And that is something that'll come in later. But I think that that's interesting is that it starts here. When Tara is saying like, you know, that we need to know this girl's name, we need to know what's happening. I'm, I'm, my take is that she's actually talking about 
dawn and dawn's imminent arrival and then there's also this interesting bit where it's she it's the first character who talks to willow and this is a motif through the dream where it's like they're all going to find out about you they're all going to see and because it's in this scene of like lesbian romance and and all of that the implication that the viewer gets is that we're talking about willow being a lesbian but as we come to find later that's not actually what willow is particularly nervous about people finding out about her um and that's not really like the core of her that she's worried will be exposed so i i just think that that's an interesting bait and switch that the that the dream does and it starts here in this scene i think it's a i think it's that it can mean multiple things um to me for Miss Kitty Fantastico, I think that the the um, show uses Miss Kitty as a kind of synecdoche for talking about their relationship. And, That's true also, yes. And I think that Tara, well, I mean, it is Spirit Guy Tara, it's not Tara Tara, but she's actually saying to Will that, like, we haven't put a name on what we are, kind of, or, like, also right. saying that no, like, we, are in this, we are in this in-betweenness. And when they are in between the curtains later, they're also in this in-betweenness. And so there's a lot of Willow's dream is really about being caught between, as all the dreams are in a lot of ways, because it's a larger theme of season four about transitions. So you have to see like where these transitions come into place. And um, I think that's one thing that she's saying. I did want to talk about really quickly what you brought up with Tara being a spirit guide. One thing that Joe Reed always says um, is that, at this point, when this aired in the two, in two thousand, that you know there was no foresight about Tara, and I think it's really interesting the way that Tara is using this episode because it kind of lends to the idea that Tara is like this supernatural being or this being yes. that has like more mythology to her than people realize. And I can easily see like viewers from Restless the very first time walking away and being like, "Oh shit, Tara knows a lot more about you know like the world than she's." giving away. And when I watched it the first time, I actually was very disappointed in how little that pays off over the course of the show, because the only real payoff for all of this is uh, the episode Family in season five, which is like a one-off, and it's a it's a fine episode, and it gives Amber Benson some stuff to do, which is nice. But overall, like all of the sort of implications that Tara had cosmic significance are sort of dropped on some level. And one thing that... Uh, is a behind the scenes like interesting fact about this and i don't know if this is 100 percent true but this is something i've always heard is that eliza dushku and david boreanaz were both supposed to be in this episode and that some of the scenes that spirit guide tara has in this episode obviously not the one where she's in bed with willow but other ones later in the episode were supposed to be faith or angel yeah i heard that too um that the, the scene in about that's explicitly about dawn in buffy's bedroom where she's like faith and i just made this bed like that is supposed to be faith and that the scene where the spirit guide is speaking for the first slayer was supposed to be david boreanaz as angel and that I think it works better with Tara because I think it would be distracting. I think the Faith one should be Faith and it's weird that it's not. But I think that it would be distracting if it was Angel speaking for the first layer. I like the use of Tara in this episode. But it does feel a little bit like behind the scenes what happened was Tara is the least developed character. Amber Benson is kind of good at doing like mysterious dialogue delivery. And that they kind of just plugged her in in the scenes where they were supposed to have someone else and couldn't get the person. Um. I, wanna, I sort of want to go back to the um, the idea of Tara as a spirit guide and, and tying that into liminality, uh, the, the, these transition states. It's perfect. It, like in retrospect, um, and they, I, I know they didn't 
plan this for while they were writing the episode, of course, but because she is the Scooby, I mean, minus Anya, to die, it makes sense mm-hmm. that she dies this liminal sp- zone because in the end, she won't be there for that long. I agree. And actually, like, uh, I think Joss always planned for her to die from the beginning because what I've yeah. read is that the season five... St- like the, the her death in season six is supposed to, was supposed to have happened in season five, and that he delayed it because he liked the Willow and Tara dynamic. So, like when she gets brain sucked, I think she was supposed to die in his initial like map out of the season. So, at, if if that's the case, he probably was aware of that at this point since he would have been planning out season five at this point already. So, I agree that there is definitely like something there. The implication that Tara is sort of this ghostly being as opposed to the more grounded people that it will bear out in the show. And I think that that's a really good point, J.E. Like, I think that that's definitely a factor. Well, you know, you got to love the uh, barrier gaze trope, so. Yeah, I mean, which he claims he didn't know about. And I'm like, yeah. we need but... to move on since Willow's dream is very short. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on some more. Wait, Do so we want to talk about drama class? I wanted to, yeah, I want to talk about Death of a Salesman because... I fucking love everything about that nonsense scene. It's great. Oh my god. I I think Mercedes McNabb, Mark Blutus, and Sarah Michelle Gellar are like doing some great acting in those scenes. They're great. (laughs) Killing it. Also, can I say that is like every time I watch Willow's uh, Willow's segment in Restless, especially during the drama scene, my insides disintegrate with cringe because that literally just brings back every fucking anxiety (laughs) scene. Yes, it's very real. And the best, and the best part is, I think at one point Willow says, "Like, well, at least it's not an opera. All of them involve opera. All of them." And I just well, die every time. And that's a reference, though, isn't it, to, to the season one episode, Nightmares, where she does get thrust yeah. into a production of Madame Butterfly. So we oh, know yeah. that she does has have been an anxiety for her before. Um, <laughs> and, um, and in the commentary, Joss says how Mark Blutus never had any more never had more fun than he did dressed as that cowboy in the death of a salesman scene i mean i don't blame him i i <laughs> if i were in his shoes same same though anyway. i think that what i find most interesting about this sequence is the way that cuz it seems like it's just pure nonsense but it's actually very revealing in how willow herself thinks of each of these people um, because of the ways that she casts them in sort of this subconscious play. Like, Harmony is, as the milkmaid, is just like a funny image to begin with, but it also is sort of like, you know, it, it sort of pushes her to the side as like this side character. And then Riley, it's like, it, it's clear she doesn't really get the Riley thing. You know, it's like, this is cowboy guy. Okay, yeah. fine, Buffy. I'm cowboy but guy. What yeah. I think is most interesting is like Buffy as Sally Bowles from Cabaret, which is like very clearly what they're doing there. And yeah. I could spend like an hour dissecting like why Willow associates Buffy with that character. <laughs> um, and my other question is like, has Willow just not read Death of a Salesman? Like, cause that, it, it, the vibe that you get is that it's like a name she's heard as like an important play, but then obviously her brain has to fill in all the details because she has no idea what it's about. It's the opposite because she says there is no cowboy in Death of a Salesman. Oh, you're right. No, you're right. She does say that. She she understands how Death of a Salesman is supposed to go, but things are going the way that she's Okay, yeah. When it comes to kind of anxiety dreams, it's it's common for for the play. Oh, of course. Um, And then so we move to, you know, she's in the curtains. I just wanted to say one more thing about the, um, the, like, uh, Sarah Michelle Gell, or Buffy's No Good Man, Man, or good for that man monologue. I love how that asserts the female autonomy and agency that the show adopts. So it not only speaks to, of course, like 
uh, Willow's sexuality, but every uh, female character in the show as a whole and their sense of agency. It actually also relates, and we'll talk about it, to Buffy's own dream and the way that her yes. own dream is about patriarchy and stuff. And like, yeah, men's worn out urge and all of that with, with yeah. the government factors in too. Yep. So then right after the, that, we have the, the, the curtain scene, right after the death yeah. of the salesman, it's the curtain moment. Um, and then from the curtain moment, we go to the high school, but uh, Sunnydale High scene. Yes. Which I love that scene, and I actually had heard the same thing you did, Connor, but I also heard that Cordelia was supposed to be in that this scene. And I was going to say, the worst thing about this scene is that Cordelia's not in it. I because, really think that that hurts okay. the scene. I, I, because it would have made, it would have also made sense. Like, it wouldn't have just been a distracting cameo. It would have been a fun cameo, well, like, but made You went sense. to the point, you went to the, to, to the, like, deep, like, making a point of having, when Willow is revealed for her true self, she believes, which is, like, this child who hasn't actually grown and is faking all of it. Yeah. That, like, they went and got the outfit from Welcome to the Hellmouth and put her in the wig and did, like, the whole thing. And to have Cordelia not be there when she was, like, the source of so much of that anxiety for Willow at that age is just such a missed opportunity. And it's very clear to me, at least, that, like, Anya's lines that she delivers in this scene are supposed to be Cordelia. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And it's just weird. Like, it's just very weird, particularly because one thing I love in this scene is, like, that Oz and Tara are like flirting yeah. and are like conspiring against her because that actually goes back to um, the Sappho poem, uh, which is an interesting note. And maybe this is where he noted it in the script because the, the Sappho poem, it has all this beautiful like language to Aphrodite, but what it actually is, and it's, it's quite funny, is the middle portion of it is basically Sappho like self-deprecating about how she's constantly um, like praying to Aphrodite because she has a crush on a new girl every week and they're all, and they always have like husbands. So it's this sort of like, also this sort of rumination on like fear of like lesbianism being transient and fear that like her lovers will go like back to men or will choose men instead of her. So it's actually like an interesting just little tiny grace note there at the end that she has that anxiety here in the classroom. And especially when there's that exchange between uh, between Oz and Tara, and especially because she's doing her book report on the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. Which, like, my whole thing with that is, like, why are you doing a book report on that in high school? But, okay. <laughs> well, because it emphasizes the child, the, the child, like, it, it's like... Right, Willow no, I know why. Like, this I'm just book has many this. themes. No, 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 but it's like it's interesting because it shows just how like child like her own like how much she feels this about herself. But I agree, it's like such a it's a silly it's such a silly idea. And as Joe Reed, so um, we had another episode with Joe, Joe Reed where he was talking about. I keep wanting to say Joy Reed because she's been in the news so much, but she was <laughs> Let's not. not talk about that. But um, Willow was hacked, and that's why she turned <laughs> from the dark side. Um, the first Slayer uh, sucks Willow's soul out, and and she kills each person in the way that they were that they contributed to the spell, yeah. which yeah. is important. Yeah, I love that, and I also like it because because they film it like a vampire jumping on you, and she sucks it out through her neck. So if you didn't have the previously on, and you're still like, what's going on? It's hard to tell what exactly is happening. Yeah, is and and I mean, I I find that Willow's dream. I feel like it is, and Matthew and I had discussed it, it's one of the more basic of the four dreams. Like, it's pretty much like, hey, and like Joss... It eases you in. Yeah, and Joss, and Joss refers to it as her, her dream. All these dreams are about the journey, but hers is about a costume. And like, you know, that's yeah. really obvious. Um, but I feel like... Well, I the re- other thing... 
Go ahead. I, I feel like I relate to that because it's like, you know, I dress in like stupid hot topic clothes. I paint my nails, but I still always feel like the like nerdy gay child whose mother dressed him like a Victorian baby. And right. Like... <laughs> and I see pictures. That's amazing. <laughs> it's I... very clever, particularly in what it tells us about Willow going forward, because especially like into season five, she starts like really dressing even more like I am like the powerful witch and all yeah. of that. And like her whole like I give you I bring you pain thing to glory and like how much Willow's like pomp and circumstance and like putting on a show is this sort of important part of her defense mechanism. It's an interesting insight into the character, which I think what what this episode does at its best is give you like one really like brilliant insight into all four of the characters. Yeah. Well, so that's that's interesting because one thing that I was gonna say is that Willow Willow and Giles's dreams in a lot of ways are underdeveloped and and they make a lot of room for Xander and Buffy specifically. I think Xander's dream is just like overly stuffed with. Things. I would agree because like the show did not make room for Xander in season four, and so they kind of have to backtrack and be like, here's all this interiority of what Xander has been feeling like for the last twenty two episodes. We're finally gonna give it to you. Um, but Willow has been like so central that like a lot of what's in her dream has been already kind of said out of her mouth. So there's not a lot more ways you can go, but Xander, oh my God, his dream is, um, epic. And we'll go into that now. Um, yeah, I think also the issue for Willow is just the standards and practices issue of like almost everything that she and Tara does has to be off camera right? Um, for the network. So like if you're hold, if you're having a dream that's like, where is Willow in her life right now? It's like, well, having a lot of sex with a woman and we can't show any of it. So yeah. there is sort of a like, we need to get this off stage kind of feeling to it also. So, so let's start Xander's dream with the first thing that happens, which is the attempted Joyce seduction. Oh my God. <laughs> Which is one of my favorite. This is actually probably my favorite moment in the whole episode. <laughs> really? It's really funny. I mean, Christine Sutherland really sells it. She does. Yeah. She does. I mean, yeah. Christine Sutherland is doing amazing. Like, you're doing amazing, sweetie. And <laughs> she, she, I, I love the back and forth of the conquistador, comfortador. Yes. yes. Um, oh, it's great dialogue. It's really great dialogue. And I think that that is such a, I mean, Xander's whole thing is about toxic masculinity, right? And he himself is wondering, like, what kind of man he's going to be. Is he going to be someone who conquests or someone who comforts, right? And he, I think, can't... Um, he doesn't actually have the faculties, I don't think, to wrestle with that question yet. He has not yet grown up enough to ask that. So when an older woman kind of asks him that, he can't even, you know, I think... There's a there's a an, an alternate dream where he goes to the bed with Joyce, but he can't do that. He literally doesn't have the um you know the just the wherewithal to answer the question. Yeah, I mean, what I think is interesting also is like, even if that's his alternative, like the idea of the comfortador is like still a very paternalistic like idea. Do you know what I mean? Like his his sort of. Because the way he, it seems like it's conceived, it's like the conquistador is the one who's like going to take the women, and the comforter is the one who's like going to like be the support they need. You know what I mean? And and yes. for Xander, it's like, it's not like he's, it's not like his, he's deciding whether he's going to be like a conqueror or like a support system. It's like a conqueror or like the one who you come to who like holds you and comforts you. Like Correct. it's not, it's still like an ownership of of the woman either way. I think what I really like is that when I, Joyce, I'm not, sure, I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree with you on that one. If we're speaking with like in generally with uh, in binaries, then wouldn't it be more paternal? 
um, you, you consider comforting to be m- m- or much more of like a maternal thing rather than a paternal thing. Hmm. I think it's, but I think it's, I think it's paternalistic in the sense that like, it's about sort of being the one who like, well, I don't know. I guess I can see what you're saying. I just, for me, it feels more like it's like, run to me and I'll hold you, you know, because you need me because I'm so big and strong is how it comes across to me, not like genuine comfort. I just think that uh, like, but does that really come across with it? Because there is that delineation between the conquistador and which is uh, traditionally a more masculine enterprise, obviously. Well, I mean, was exclusively a male uh, enterprise and the comforter is much more of of giving like shelter, making a home, which is what women are mostly associated with. I'm not saying it's- it's I'll, you know, I'll grant that. I just, part of it is I just, I have, and I will just cop this. I have a very uncharitable view of him as a character. And and so since like, given the rest of his behavior over the course of like the entire show, I just, to me, and even before this episode, like to me, the way that Xander views being a comforter or a supportive guy is like in a very nice guy way where it's like, and now, and now I can have sex with you because I've been your like shelter in the storm, as opposed to like genuinely like being a like a, a more feminine like comfort presence. Do you get what I'm saying? It's more about right. like what yeah. I can do for you about- so that I can get things. It's transactional. I do think about- that if we have to have a binary, though, I think the the thing that comes to mind for me is the idea of being the conquistador as someone who is, like, proactive versus the comfortador who is someone who's reactive, who's, yeah. like, um, you know, if the girl comes to me and she needs comfort, like, I'll be there type of thing. And Xander is very much someone who's caught between, like, being proactive and reactive. Because his, his whole for life sure. right now, I think, is reacting to things. And he's not part of the group right now as much. And he's not out there, you know, having, you know, getting a job or, or whatever or making something of his life. And he's just reacting to circumstances. And I think yeah. that's a big part of the conquistador, comfortador type thing as well. Yeah, I mean... Reality is, in, in a way, is that of, of stasis. I just think that, like, the binary is almost a red herring because I think that one thing that's interesting is that it recurs when he's talking to uh, Principal Snyder in the Apocalypse Now sequence and Principal Snyder rejects it entirely. And it's like, you're neither of those things. Like, it's yeah. Yeah, and suggests a third option. And so, like, to me, I think that the way it comes across to me is Joyce sort of suggests the conquistador thing. Xander's like, no, I'm the opposite. And the point is, that's, like, actually no. Like, that Xander's conception, either way, is this sort of, like, self-centered thing that's about, like, finding a way for the women to want him. Like, I, I don't know. For me, it's like his binary is a false binary and that he's not... Act- like, I agree that there is a binary there, but I don't think that Xander's conception of a comfortador is an actual, like, well, binaristic thing. I think he actually... He misunderstands Joyce as the problem, too, and that is yes. Xander's problem because... Joyce says, are you looking for conquest or comfort? And she's asking him, do you want me to comfort you? And then he answers, I'm the comforter, basically. And he misunderstands Joyce's entire question. What's funny is he misunderstands her when it's like his mental projection of Joyce. Like he's talking to himself, really, because it's like not Joyce. And what my favorite thing in that sequence is that when she actually invites him in, her lips don't move. Mm -hmm. Like it's not her speaking. It's also just this ominous shot. And for me, it has this almost menace to it, which makes sense because Xander's afraid, but also because I believe the last time we saw that bedroom, Jenny Callender's body was in the bed. Uh, no, that, no, not in Joyce's bed. 
No. Isn't that Joyce's bed where that happens? No, no. that's in Giles's bed. Giles's oh, I'm, I'm a completely crazy person. You're absolutely <laughs> right. But it's the Jenny same Jenny Callender and Joyce have never no, met. No, no, no. Yeah, that wouldn't that's make any sense. It's not Buffy's house. It's Giles' house. Never mind. Let that go. But, but what I'm... I guess what I'm thinking and the reason it hit, it struck me is because it's like the same dolly shot, like rolling out onto it, like to show you the, the plot, like the, the tableau on the bed. That's I don't fair. know. So I want to move us on to the, the sand, the sandbox. Well, so I yeah. just wanted to point out, cause you have said this a bunch of times on the podcast, Matthew, but I wanted to point it out in the episode that Joss does say when Xander's peeing, that's probably the best use of the initiative we had all year. Um, yeah. <laughs> And I just think yeah, that's I mean, like, the initiative watching Xander hold his dick is about as obvious a metaphor as you can have, right? Yeah, like, and it's I just, like very... I love that Joss, but I also I love the idea that Joss knows that, like, this, like, really that that good, was bad. silly yeah. metaphor joke is the best they've done with the initiative. Well, um, this season is pretty dire, all told. It has, like, a couple really beautiful episodes and really um, fun episodes that are in the middle of, like, the sea of myth episodes where you're like, why am I watching this? <laughs> um, but yeah, and also, during that dream, during the scene with Joyce... Joss actually ref- uh, references a movie I've never seen, uh, Steven Soderbergh, Soderbergh's The Limey. And yeah. He says that that, have, that and Eyes Wide Shut, which is a movie I have seen, really helped uh, influence this episode. That that makes sense, for sure. Um, but yeah, sorry, Matthew, getting to the... So getting to the sandbox, um, we have Giles and Spike swinging on the swing set and Giles saying he's training spike to be a watcher and then you have buffy playing in the sandbox calling xander her brother um so i think that they're uh, yeah let's just talk about that it's weird that the payoff for the giles spike thing is in season six Um, yeah yeah when we see spike in that suit and they they talk about like a shark but on land and then there's the demon that's a really silly cartoon looking shark um which is and you know joss points that out how they got to pay that off in season six um which almost feels like weird like they didn't need to but i appreciate well i don't i mean i think it was more that they were in season six and they were like hey what if we did this it would be cute you know what i mean to call back because the actual payoff i think for spike i mean it's twofold right it's like first first this scene is xander being rejected both by his father figure and by like the woman he actually loves who are like because it's like i don't see you as my son and Buffy's like, I don't see you as a romantic interest at all. So it's that, like, twofold. But it's also, and the idea that, like, Giles would want to train Spike before Xander is, like, the ultimate, like, degradation of Xander's, like, you know, position in the group, right? So it's Xander's anxiety. But it also, like, if we're looking at it as a mythic thing in the actual show, because there is magic happening in this dream, right? The payoff for Spike becoming a watcher is really the season five fool for love type stuff where he sort of prepares Buffy for the first Slayer's message that death is her gift. And that he's sort of on some level, like a, like the initial guide for her to, to get around to that point of view, um, which I think is interesting only because like it ties into like the Slayer myth stuff is introduced in this episode really for the first time and becomes such a central aspect to season five tied specifically to the character of Spike. Um, so that to me is sort of, is sort of the, the, the larger payoff, I guess. I think for me, it's more that like Xander feels outside of the father son dynamic that, that is in this dream, not in reality of Giles. Yeah, no, for sure. That, for sure. And that, um, and then also you have, cause obviously we've talked so much about how Buffy is about alternate families. And then you have Giles adopting Spike rather than Xander and Xander right. kind of feels like the disinherited son in a lot of ways. Yeah. And then Buffy calling him brother. And then 
I think the larger thing, too, is interesting to think about, you know, whether Xander feels like he could have been groomed to be a watcher. I think that there actually is some subtext for Xander being groomed to be a watcher, especially since later on in the series, he loses his eye and he's called the one who sees everything. Right. And then in the comics in season eight, he becomes Buffy's unofficial oh God, watcher. We can't, we can't talk about the comics. I just did. So, um, I just did. But, um, so, I you, I just, I'll, I'll just lose my, I'll just lose it. But I, I so, I think that there's like set up in in a in a way for Xander just it's I think it's you know when you're in a family especially and then this is an alternate family like trying to find out what your function is and I mean Willow as the spirit knows her function um, and she performs it over and over again but Xander actually doesn't understand where he fits into this family right now. Yeah. Can you argue what's the difference between the heart and the spirit? Right, because right, like the spirit is the metaphysical heart, right? And the heart is just like the symbolic physical thing it's the that is supposed to be the spirit. Yeah. What I think is, is interesting, too, is the way that Xander plays it off. Like, he's like, oh, that's fine. Like, I've got other stuff going on in my life. And then you have, like, the two, the scene where, like, he's watching himself from the ice cream truck, like, watching the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I don't know. I just, I love that, that, like, sort of, and also have the dream then, like, it's almost as though Xander really can't deal with the sandbox scene because there's a cut in the dream there. And, like, the other Xander takes over as the as the protagonist for the rest of the dream. Like, it, the, the one in the ice cream truck. Like, there's a shift of, of perspective. And before that, it's so it's almost like him, like, going, like, hitting a reset button on the dream. Like, okay, let's, let's go back to something lighter or something that's not this because I can't quite deal with this. Um, which sort of reifies the theme of the dream in general, which is that he can't deal with his father at the top of the stairs and he keeps trying to escape and like start a new scenario each time, um, which I think is interesting. It has almost like a video game feeling to it where it's like restart level. Um, yeah. um, so we also get the um, ice cream truck. Then we get the ice cream truck scene, um, which I actually really like that whole, I like everything going on there. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, Emma Caulfield's so good. And I love yep. her, all of her delivery in that. She's like doing yeah. great. Um, I like that they have the weird green screen. Um, and Yeah, it's so funny. And Joss mentions in the commentary, I forget. Now, I didn't write it down, but I forget. He specifically says a type of shot. They wanted to make it look like an old Alfred Hitchcock movie. But whatever type of camera they used, they couldn't afford. So then oh. they just did green screens to make it look more like... Uh, like bad movie, like Fakey a, and old. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a great effect. Oh, geez. Uh, Anya's, like the, I think the best delivery of the episode is Anya. Uh, like, I, I think I figured out how to use these gestures to uh, drive. Yeah. <laughs> I like first the idea that like Xander is worried about the idea of Anya becoming a demon again. Like it's something that has occurred to him yeah. because mm-hmm. that obviously will factor into the rest of the show. I, but I also like the complete like the idea that she'd be fine with him going off and having a threesome with yeah. like the lesbians in the yeah. back, which is such like a male fit. Like, of course she wouldn't, you know, like it, but she's so like, Oh sure. Yeah. Um, and I also like the way that when like the, the flirting that happens between him and Tara and Willow, um, there's two moments there that I really, really love. One is when Willow says, I'm way ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And like in Xander's like, in, in the context of the conversation, it's like, oh, like, yeah, we definitely are going to have a threesome. But the way she says it, it's more like, yeah, I'm having all this success with my hot girlfriend and you're and like moving on with my life and being an adult and you're not. Yeah. Which is interesting since Willow's dream was about how she doesn't think that she's actually a real adult. But it's clearly the costume is clearly working 
on Xander, at yeah, least. Like, yeah. he believes it. Um, I also like that Tara calls him interesting. Her lips don't move because, again, it's like I like the woman isn't saying this. Actually, it's just in your head. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in the commentary, Joss mentions actually that uh, they so they weren't allowed to show, of course, Willow and Tara kissing, and right. that they actually weren't allowed to show Xander looking too long. Like they <laughs> originally, the scene was longer, but like the sense whoever was censoring them, I forget, said they had to cut down even just on Xander watching. I'm surprised they got away with the sound effects, honestly. Yeah. Like, it was a serious standards and practices thing at the time. Those sound effects get me every time. I think at one point there's like a slurp and I just can't help. I just it's stop. gross. Like you try to and imagine what the kiss could possibly look like. Oh to make God. Those noise. Cut to Sarah Michelle Gellar in Cruel Intentions. Yeah. Um, the other thing I love in this dream overall, but it factors in here and I made a note, is like part of the genius of this episode is, and particularly the Xander sequences where they do this most, but it happens in Giles's as well, is that the sound stages are all actually connected in this yeah. one building. Mm -hmm. And so he, you can do this thing where Xander like runs down a hallway through like four different sets. And yeah. it's just a really... through the, the ice cream truck to his basement. Yeah. Which is the best shot, I think, of, of the yeah. of the entire episode. That shot gets me every time. It's really good. Yeah. And I and it's just a it's just such a clever way of using the this the world that they already had. Like it's not like they had to build that, it's how yeah. it was already set up. But it yeah. also is exactly how dreams work. Exactly. Like, yeah. You know, like that's like we were saying with Willow and the drama class, like this is exactly how a dream works. You open like your front door and suddenly you're at school and your brain doesn't even question it. Yeah. because it's logical in the narrative that you're crafting in your head. And it's interesting, the lack of, you could argue there's a lack of uh, transitional space in those particular, like in that particular, not montage, um, that, that sequence where he runs through the room. So what yeah. does transition mean in that particular? Exactly, exactly. And particularly with the idea that he keeps, because it works that he keeps winding up in the basement, Mm -hmm. Like it, it works not only narratively but also spatially in like the literal set they're running around in. I just yeah. think it's so great. Yeah, and one of, could that be what inspired the the episode in the first place? They said that it is like one of the reasons uh -huh. that it, this occurred to them was because they were they they were like you know we could do a chase scene where you go through all these different spaces like that was one of the initial things that they were looking at. Uh, yeah, and um, he says that like Xander's thing is like he's stuck and he can't figure a way out. Um, that's why he keeps ending up in the basement, which I feel like, right. I, I don't know, I feel like Xander and Willow's journeys in the dreams, at least, are the most relatable. I mean, probably mm -hmm. because, you know, Giles is like an adult and Buffy's a slayer, so of course... Right, like, you, you're not really, you can't quite relate to, like, yeah. your cosmic calling as a demon warrior, <laughs> or like, you know, or to being 50, which is what yeah. Giles is. Yeah. About, you know what I mean? Um, but I... And I there's, there's the part where he where he's at the bottom of the staircase looking up at, like, this faceless father... Do we, we don't even see the Harrises at any point during the series, do we? Yes, we do. In the wedding episode, oh, where oh, yeah, he leaves yeah. Anya at the altar. But they recast them. Like, they weren't yeah. planning on it. Listen, I, I just said that Jenny Calendar was dead in Buffy's house. So we all make mistakes. Don't worry. <laughs> it's a fun time podcast with friends. This uh, father figure that, that obviously, that, um, that, uh, that basically chastises uh, Xander for all of his failings. And of course you have like the overt like Oedipal ring to it, like kill your father, marry your mother. You yeah. have fear of what he will become. And uh, also just the shame of where he came from. Like what's yeah. interesting is, it, is it's almost a, um, an echo of Buffy's dream because what Buffy is trying to figure, you know, you think you know what's to come, what you are. 
And a lot of Xander's dream is like, well, I'm from this like, you know, working class family with abusive parents. Mm. And will I ever amount to anything more than that? Or like, is the stain of that too much for anyone to really overcome? And it's it, that's I, I, that's part of what I think is powerful about this sequence. Like, even as someone who doesn't care for him as a character, I find yeah. it like sort of very moving in that sense. Um, and, you know, the nature of the abuse is never quite it's something that the show takes a very light touch with in part because Xander doesn't want to talk about it. Um, but you know that sometimes he's had to like sleep in the yard because his parents were screaming at each other or whatever. The, the, all you really need to know is nothing good is happening in that house. Yeah. But it also, the implication I think in this episode is that the father is also physically abusive to Xander in some right. violent way. What's also interesting, just, I know that like, who wants to talk about edible cloths? Uh, edible Jeez, I can't talk today. Edible complexes. <laughs> um, if you consider, so you kill your father, marry your mother, etc. Um, if Joyce is the mother figure, how does that play into the interpretation of the dream? It starts with a mother right. figure and more or less ends with, with a father figure. Yeah, and you see Xander constantly reminding himself in the dream and then comically in the real world that like Joyce is mom, not like a person to fuck. Yeah. Like it's like Buffy's mom, Buffy's mom, Buffy's mom. You know, like that—that's inappropriate. That desire that he clearly has. Like Joyce, uh, um, Mrs. Summers. In terms of, like, Giles as the father figure, um, you know, Giles and Joyce do have an explicit sexual relationship on the show. So there is sort of that whole, like, dynamic to it, too, where if he's if he's resenting Giles and wanting to, and being upset with his own father and sort of wants to fuck, like, both spiritual mom, but also, like, Giles is, like, love interest in a certain sense. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, Although I can't remember if, if Xander and Willow ever find out that that happened. I think maybe only Buffy knows. So one thing I want to talk about with the basement too is that I think, I also think that this is a specifically very, very queer narrative for Xander. Um, I don't know if anyone, I bring it up all the time and I talk about it too much, but there's uh, Jack Halberstam's The Queer Art of Failure about the ways in which like queer, like failure isn't uh, how queer people learn mostly through failure, especially because when we're young, we're usually told that we're failing at our gender and blah, 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 blah. So I actually, every time I watch the basement sequence, I think about the ways in which it's not exactly about Xander escaping from the basement, but Xander has to like learn from the basement and he has to accept that it's like a part of who he is and that his failure to launch, if you will, is a learning thing and he has to he has to keep coming back to it like it's not just that he's trapped in it it's that this is actually the path that he's supposed to take is through the basement and rather than like resisting it he kind of has to he has to keep coming back to it because that's his path like the inverse of uh joseph campbell yeah Yeah. which is of course buffy's narrative right I mean, what I think is is interesting is there are actually a lot of, like, sort of gay things in this dream. Um, and that's, like, I mean, part of what's weird about Xander as a character in some ways is that there's, again, this is something that's never been explicitly said. They have said they weren't sure whether it was going to be Xander or Willow who was yeah. going to be gay. Right. Um, but I've also, like, heard rumor or tell, and it does, if you watch it back, it makes it would have made a lot more sense for it to be Xander. Um, yeah. in, in terms of the early seasons and right. there are, and like so a lot of the themes there that have always been like very gay about Xander are sort of brought to the forefront here and the basement over the course of season four is mostly used as like the space for that for like the weird homoerotic thing going on with him and Spike down there 
Um, which like, I mean, as someone who was online at the time when this was like airing, certainly that was like the big slash fan fiction thing of the time was like Xander and Spike in the basement. Oh boy, was it. (laughs) Spike's tied up and Xander's dating this girl who, I mean, at the time Anya was kind of a cipher. Like she wasn't really a person yet. That doesn't really get, like, she doesn't really get to be a person until like season five and six and seven. And, you know, it was sort of like, well, Xander has this weird nagging demon girlfriend, but what he really wants is to, like, argue with Spike and tie him up with, like, progressively tighter knots. So it's this weird, <laughs> like, so there's that, and then there's, like, the soldier fantasy that's going on throughout. Um, we haven't even talked about the scene with, with Principal Snyder, which I think is the best like part. Like, his of magnum, magnum opus. Yeah, I mean, well, what, well, I have no doubt I've been trying to say something. <laughs> okay, well, sorry, we talk a lot. I talk a lot, I apologize. But, um, but right down to, like, the soldiers are watching me, like, hold my penis. Like, there's this whole thing. And then the ultimate, like, thing that's, like, the big trauma that makes him die is, like, his father monster, like, penetrates him physically, like, reaches right into his body. So there's, like, a whole lot of weird stuff going on here if we want to, like, so... if we wanted to go down. Narrative. I would say let's just talk about Principal Snyder scene and then move on to Giles yeah, and yeah. skip other stuff because uh, we need to keep moving. Um, so Giles has the shortest dream. We're making decent time. He does. He, <laughs> he does. Like in the book Slayers and Vampires, the oral history. Um, I don't even know how to say his name. Armin Shimmerman. Armin yeah. Shimmerman. Okay. Um, he actually says his quote is, "I think the very best work on Buffy, perhaps my whole career, was in that last episode, Restless." And he yeah. says how when they called him to come in for that episode, he was like really surprised because he thought he wouldn't be back on the show. Right. Um, and Josh. And he was had... busy on Deep Space Nine too. Right. I mean, he right. had all this stuff going um, on. It's crazy that he had such two big geek shows at the same time. At the same time, yeah. yeah. Um, and how Joss had assumed since Armin was a little bit older that he would have seen Apocalypse Now, and Armin Shimmerman says that he had never seen the movie until they That's called him in. And so he, like, watched it obsessively just for that, like, what? such a good impression. Yeah, I think it's really good. Um, And it's, what, like, a three-minute scene? It's crazy that he had to, like, watch that. But, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting that he hadn't actually seen it until then. Um, And Joss says how they had, like, VHS copies of it on set because they wanted to make sure they, like, summarized the recreation of it as, like, much as they could. Yeah, Um, that's, it's, uh, what I was struck by when I was rewatching, I was like, he's doing such a good Brando. Like, it's such a good... It's such a good reenactment of that scene, I think which is, is part too, of why yeah. it's so goofy. Um, and I also think that, like, what what I what I really love about it is, I mean, what it comes down to is, I think that the the like worst deci- I mean, among the many many bad decisions that they make in season seven, which I'm just sort of generally down on as a season. But uh, the the worst one is Joss wanted to kill Xander and the writers set like all objected and they like outvoted him essentially. Um, And if they had this whole sequence would have been so much more powerful, I think, because there's the whole it's like, you know, you're a whipping boy raised by mongrels and set on a sacrificial stone. But of all the characters, like apart from his eye, which like, you know, okay, that's bad. But, you know, Xander never quite is sacrificed in the way that certainly that his girlfriends are, Um, you know, so it's one of those things where that could have been a really like great foreshadowing, um, but it just doesn't happen, unfortunately. And I, that's, it's unfortunate that they don't kill Xander for a lot of reasons in season seven. I think that it would have, the idea was for him to become like the face of the first, which I think would have been much better than what actually happens in the rest of the season. But um, anyway, that's just a side note. I'm going to go on record Uh, saying I would have hated that. Um, but, uh, well, a lot of a lot of people would have. I think it would have been way, way, way better than what happened. But um, moving so. on to Giles's dream, 
Um, You know, I think it's weird that Joss doesn't seem too interested in what's going on with Giles, considering that I think him and Xander both were neglected, like, for characters. I think in this season they both were vaguely neglected. Um, And, you know, Giles kind of does get shit on from that very first episode in season four when Buffy walks in on him and uh, Olivia coming out naked from, like, the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, it's gross, you're old, as if, like he's not allowed to have a sex life, which is, I guess, a thing teens think about adults. Um, so it's almost weird that we don't get more of that, but I guess, like, you know, time constraints and whatnot. Um, well, I also think it's because I think that the show is not super interested in Giles anymore at this point, which is a shame, but, like, it is just also kind of true. Yeah. It ends up becoming a brilliant move, though, because they end up, it's like his 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 use, usefulness is called into question in later right. seasons. Yeah. It's interesting that I also think like in a structural way, the way that the episode is written, I think Giles's dream is just um, comic relief because it's the funniest dream of all of them. And it's right in between Xander's, which is super long and Buffy's, which is super intense. Yeah, it's almost a break. I yeah, think like the writers were like, oh, well, we know, like, we know that we're not going to get a lot of Giles. So we need to like have Buffy at the carnival staking a vampire, which was hysterical, and Spike posing for the cameras, and Anya reading that poem, or the joke about the duck. Like, it's just, like, joke after joke after joke. At the same time, it has some of the most disturbing images in the episode, which I think is interesting. Like, it's it's sort of a roller coaster. Like, I find the sight of Olivia, like, weeping over the broken baby stroller, like, very deeply upsetting. Yeah. Um, and the other, so this is another one that's just like a rumor people say, and this one I've never, I have no, but there there have been people who have always said on like message words and whatnot, that it was supposed to be Jenny Calendar in this episode instead of Olivia. Um, and I think that that would have been interesting. The problem with Olivia, and I think Fina Urishay is great, but like she's only in like two episodes. Yeah. Oh yeah. So Olivia existed. In yeah. I revisited so, the episode. She's only really memorable because she's in Hush, which is a memorable episode. But otherwise, like, she's only in, like, one episode apart from that. Yeah. And I think that in terms of, like, what buff- what being the Watcher has cost him, which is sort of the implication of, like, because when she's pushing the stroller in the carnival, she's pregnant. Yeah. And then in the crypt, when she's crying over the stroller, she's not anymore. And there's this sort of, like, implication that this, like, what being the Watcher has cost Giles a normal life, but what being the Watcher really cost Giles was Jenny, right? So I just think that that would have been so interesting. Of course, there's all kinds of, like, was Rovia Lamort mad about being the first the first evil because she's a born-again Christian? She says she yeah. wasn't, whatever, we'll never know. Um, but I, I just think that would have been great. I'm also just, like, a huge Jenny Calendar like, stan, so I would have loved that. Um, oh, yeah, I, and I love, I, I do think what this episode does really well as I mean, we said it in the beginning, they're really good with continuity, especially up to this point. And I almost think they could have gone a little bigger. Yeah. You know, we get we get Oz for, and it does really work having Oz and Tara. Like for me, that having him back is worth it for that, you know, scene of him and Tara flirting and like being like looking like a talking yeah. shit. Yeah. And on if, Willow. if you could bring back one person for each one, like for Xander, bringing back Principal Snyder is so brilliant. I yeah. think bringing back Jenny for Giles would have been, you know, like just yeah. bring back someone. It's actually, it reminds me of Conversations with Dead People in season seven, which is yeah. one of my favorite episodes for all that I'm down on season seven, um, <laughs> and which is one of the best episodes of the show, in, in my opinion, but is, is hurt by the fact that like they clearly couldn't get certain people back. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? oh, totally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, in so and what you guys just said about the connecting, I thought that's interesting, too, because Joss even mentions when they go from Spike's crypt 
to the bronze. Joss says in the commentary, Spike's crypt was next to the bronze, so everyone right. said, let's just go there. And then we let's stuck just go Giles's, right there. And then we stuck Giles' living room in the middle of the bronze because why not? Um and uh, uh I even have in my notes that I I I think that even if we could have gotten both Olivia and Jenny, but I would have really liked Jenny. Like it would have made sense if she's the one crying in the crypt. I that's the thing. I would have liked it to be Olivia in the carnival yeah. and then Jenny the one crying over the stroller. I think that would like it could have been just such a tiny cameo. It would yeah. have been so good. Yeah. Um you know, so so there's uh, I actually just want to go back real quick um because when the dream opens, it's one of like the most beautiful little sequences in the episode when Giles is using the stopwatch on Buffy. Yeah. But it's also like very unsettling because First of all, it evoke it, it, it's reminiscent of the same sequence from Helpless, right? Yeah. So it's reminding you that he's done terrible things to her in the name of this calling. Um, even if he regretted them later, it's like, you know, great, you still did it. But there's also, he has this line of dialogue that's so unsettling that is, this is the way women and men have behaved since the beginning before time. And he says it as though he genuinely believes it. So it's this like very weird moment and it ties into at the end of the dream when Sinea cuts his head open you know he has that saying he's like I know who you are and I can defeat you with my intellect um you underestimate me because you never had a watcher and so it is this sort of interesting thing where even though Giles like forsake forsook the council and was like oh this like patriarchal control of this woman is bad he clearly has still like a lot of internalized a lot of like the Slayer needs to be controlled by the Watcher. This is what women need. Like, there, there is a lot of that still in him that he's still working through. And I think that's, like, one of the more interesting points in the dream that is overall very short, in part because he figures out what's going on faster than the others, so it kind of has to get cut. And, quick. I mean, it does. that does track with Giles. Like, it tracks that yeah. he would be the one to figure it out really well, quickly. Well, because you look at what he does with Ben, you yeah. look at, you know, all of that. He, he, he talks the talk, but he doesn't always walk the walk on that. Yeah. Of course, it kills him, that yeah. internalized patriarchy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I wanted to point I... out that I love Anya doing stand-up. Yes! <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Emma Caulfield, I always, I mean, I say this all the time, but, like, she really, I. it's a shame she didn't go, get to go on and do, like, lots of, like, her comedic timing is so great. Um, and well, You it's... know, she turned, she turned down uh, Starbuck on Battlestar, and that was just, like, the biggest mistake ever in history that was like david caruso level like what oh, is wrong God. with you <laughs> um because i think she'd be pretty but, big so uh a fun fact is um when giles gets up to sing joss says in the commentary that um he literally just wrote a speech for giles he was like oh i wrote a boring exposition speech and christoph beck the composer at the time he just like tr- like turned it into a song and that's him playing the piano on the stage with giles uh-huh and the band playing is uh, Three Star Mary, and that's the band that was Dingo's Ate My Baby. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, And also I wanted well, to point out, Matthew, I know I've talked about this before. Remember when I pointed out in Graduation Day that there's a Harmony lookalike who was always an extra in the background? Yeah. She's standing there behind Willow, uh, behind Willow and Xander with her lighter up. Queen um, Harmony lookalike. <laughs> well, you know, the th- I, I often, I mean, Harmony was an extra. What I love about yeah. what, what Mercedes McNabb's hustle is like unmatched, because if you think like she's in the unaired pilot as an yeah. extra and is in the final episode of Angel as a series regular, like yeah. no one has ever had like the glow up that Mercedes <laughs> McNabb did on this franchise. Oh, the other the other thing I want to mention before we before we go, because I know Matthew's going to tell us we're like dwelling um, quite reasonably because we are, but uh, is that 
in his song, <clears throat> he's like, Willow, look through the Chronicles, et cetera. And then he's like, Xander, help Willow. Um, <laughs> and it what it shows you is that like Xander's conception of the idea that he's the last person that Giles would ever want to train as a watcher is correct. Um, I'm going to do the opposite because I haven't spoken about Giles' dream yet. <laughs> um, I... I actually like Olivia, and I would have hated if Jenny came back. Oh, really? I, yeah, same, same. Yeah, Jenny is like, I mean, the Jenny story happened. Like, you know what? She she fucked around with her with some shit, and she died. Like, shit happens. Like, you know, I don't know. I just don't really, I wouldn't have liked it if she came back to cry over a stroller. I also think that, like, the thing for me is that the metaphor is about, like, what Giles' watcherdom costs him, and it wouldn't have worked with Jenny because he only met her because he was, you know, made a watcher and made to come over to LA basically to like watch over Buffy and like, had it and not Olivia's been for watching back he... home is what you're saying. Right. I think the, the iceberg writing with Olivia, like sure she's underwritten, but there's also a lot there like to, to think about. And to me, the iceberg writing is like someone who he's known for years probably, and hasn't been able to like let into his life because when she comes for, hush she says like you've always told me these stories and i thought they were fantastical and then this really happened and you can you know i think that there's a i mean if anyone if this happened to most people they'd be like i don't know if i want to be part of that life where i know you're going to die just like joyce almost doesn't want to be a part of buffy's life when she finds out um and so i i can see the iceberg writing with olivia of 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 him of her being like there's this man i love like you know she's probably in the group chat with her friends like listen giles <laughs> has like giles lays the dick down real good but like he is fucking around with some supernatural shit and it's scary i think part of my issue with with that because i agree and i think olivia i wish she was in more of the season because i think it's an interesting conflict for giles to have my issue is that i don't understand exactly like because it is an iceberg where you only see the tippy tip i don't really get there because if she's someone he's known for a long time like the age of the actress really throws me off because she's so much younger than him that it's like it's not that Jenny was any better. I mean, Jenny was the same age as Cordelia and Xander, if you go by the actors. But <laughs> the the uh, they were older than her, actually. But if you um, but just in like if he if she if they had picked an actress who was the same age as Do you know how old she is. I could look it up right now, but I have looked it up, and I don't think this is just a case of like white people aging terribly. Like I think she is also like considerably. Okay, I thought it was like literally like black don't crack, and she's yeah, like, no, and Giles, I mean, and you, she's you like. You could explain it that way, but like I don't think that's the case. I look, I just googled it. She's forty five now, and he's like sixty, right? So yeah. you know, at the time that this was airing, she was like thirty something. It's just to me, if they had cast an actress who was the same age as like him and Robin Sachs, like as Ethan Rain, like I would have been able to be like, oh, this is someone who knew him as Ripper or like who's been part of his like old life. But to me, it feels like someone he met like maybe four years ago. I could say they don't, we don't exactly know how old she's supposed to play because Bianca Lawson's still playing a teenager. Of course. <laughs> so Buffy's dream begins. I appreciate that it's, a you know, Buffy's has like, uh, like four different instances of a dream within a dream. Like she wakes up in her dorm room yeah, bed. With Anya across from her saying, like, please wake up. And then the first layer is hanging over her bed, which is one of the few times that I remember Jeez. the first time watching it that I jumped, like, it was a jump scare for me. Now it scares the death out of me. And I, <laughs> I know it's coming. It's one of those, yeah, one of those great shots. Oh, man. <laughs> um, 
And then I love that they then put it in the credits in season five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they know it's good. They know what they're doing. They know what the people want. And anyway. Then, and then, you know, we go to her her actual, like, bedroom in her house. Uh, Joss Whedon points this out that in the next scene, you know, Tara's talking to Buffy, but through the first, or through the first layer. Um, Joss points out, and I knew that I had read this at some point, but I didn't know that this was something that was true. In the commentary, he says, like, quote-unquote, what's interesting trivia-wise that this is the first scene where Dawn is mentioned, and it's the first time Michelle Trachtenberg came to set to visit. Yeah, she visited the set that day. Just, to, just She wasn't even auditioning. She was just there to uh, hang out with Connor. Sarah Michelle because they worked together. What? Let me finish my quote. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were done. <laughs> she came to a set to visit, and that that's the first time he met her that day. Because I had definitely read that before, but I didn't realize this part, that she was just visiting as a fan of the show, and Sarah was the one that said to him, you should have Michelle read for Dawn. And I think that's really interesting. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, I thought, I knew that she had visited set, but I thought it was like, I wouldn't have thought, I thought they would have already cast Dawn at that point, or at least had people like in mind who they were going to cast. So it's crazy that like the first time she visited set was when they mentioned Dawn. I don't know. It's, it's a, good... a neat, it's a neat. Serendipitous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, because we're finally in Buffy's dream, um, I'd like to talk about the, racism that appears throughout <laughs> the episode because oh gosh how many times you could make a drinking game out of it it's how many so times they re- refer to uh the first as primeval primal or were at the very worst animal an animal yeah it's fucking christ yeah. well uh, and also i mean she's filmed like an animal in the first yeah. three dreams too I'm not, I'm not done yes i was gonna say that but also um and the commentary on on her hair on her appearance um, that, I mean, these are supposed to be like quirky, funny one-liners, um, especially when, when it cuts to, when, when, uh, Sarah Michelle or when Buffy is about to, to go into like, and that hair, like for yeah. the whatever. Um, it's just, oh God. I mean, it's, yeah. I still don't understand how, well, no, of course I understand how that, that could have been like, uh, kept in the episode during the edi- editing process, but Jesus, it's just, and of course there's, even though like, I mean, the Slayer eventually represents something um, a little less, uh, uh, like a little less villainous uh, as the show moves on. It's just like, like, uh, like positing her as the diametric opposite of Buffy, who is a blonde white girl, who is the epitome of of Western beauty standards is just so unsettling. And it, it, it gets worse with age. Yeah, it's 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 really I mean when I said like this is my favorite episode it's like but every time I rewatch it I like I'm just I cringe through about half of it now because of all this. And like you know as a white kid watching this back then it didn't ping for me, but like I mean I even wrote the line down like the, about the what kind of impression am I making in the workplace because it's yeah. so bad and it's like the punchline that ends the whole episode because it's oh, like yeah. that's when they all wake up. And what um, what's even worse is that um like at first Tara she is used to to be uh, the Slayer's voice, so it's someone it's has robbing, to speak it, yeah, for so her. It's robbing, yeah, so it's robbing it's robbing the, the Slayer of her agency, which is what she's supposed to represent wholly as a Slayer. Yes, it's completely. It, it it's completely ludicrous. It's super well, counterintuitive. It's like I can't talk, so I summoned. I borrowed this white woman to explain myself to you because you'll listen to her. Like it's and really then, bad. And then when when she finally does speak, it's in like grunts. It's very it's quote quote unquote like basic language. Um, right. And it's just it's it's even more appalling. 
The other thing is Buffy throughout that whole sequence is wearing like if you just look at because they 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 choose like the wardrobe very. Oh, the white cherry dress? It's a white dress with a cherry print, like, to suggest, like, perfect white, pure virginity. It's, like, really crazy. Yeah. Especially once in season seven, like, the, I mean, just to, there's no way to, like, not just put out, the the first Slayer's narrative is a rape storyline. Where yeah. it's like these men held her down and forced this demon energy into her and she's unclean because she was raped by these men, essentially, is like where it turns out in season seven. So it's like this black woman whose like body was violated by these men and now she's a demon and full of like demon energy and like Buffy has to talk down to her and explain and it's the triumph of the episode is Buffy explaining to her actually I'm civilized. Like I don't sleep on a bed of bones. Like I shop and wear a cute white cherry dress and like I'm blonde it's really like there's something very and it doesn't feel like there's any kind of critique or self-awareness to it at all it's just when when Buffy like a like a uh coats her face in mud it's like a disparaging that or it's supposed to be sort of a disparagement of that white purity that she possesses yeah and And Riley's disgusted well so I always interpreted the 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 mud differently um, but I know we, I don't know, we, we've gone into the Slayer thing, so I don't know if we want to go to that scene or go back scene by scene, but I do want to say that I've always felt like, um, that's, I have a note for it, but one second, sorry. Um, she's kind of, she goes into the muck when she's in the, um, initiative after talking mm-hmm. to Riley and, and blah, blah, blah. And yeah. she's Adam. kind of in the middle of like patriarchy central and everything that the initiative represents. And I always felt like her dream was about how much she has to get in touch with her slayerness and has to learn from the first layer, even though she's resistant. And then when she opens up that bag, which is supposed to be her bag of weapons, she actually learns that, her greatest weapon is to like dive into the muck, if you will, of what it means to be a slayer. And that the biggest obstacle for her, and she'll say it in later, I mean, in get it done, which revisits every racist trope we've talked about in season seven. She says the the monks offered her more power, but she would have had to lose her humanity. And so when she is diving into that muck and putting it on her face and Riley is disgusted. To me, it's always been that she knows that, like, if she gets deeper into being the Slayer, it will isolate her from her friends more and more because she's searching for her friends the whole time. And so I've always thought that, like, she kind of knows on some level, like, the more and more I become the Slayer, the more and more isolated I'm going to be. Right, and that's leading to the first Slayer being her guide in season five, right? Like, that is where it goes. But in this episode, like, the way she saves her friends and saves everyone, it's just, I don't know, that whole confrontation is Uh, so so he And Joss does actually say in the commentary kind of what you said, Matthew. He said that, like, when she puts the mud on, she's she's the, like, uh, I forget what he says, like, the embodiment of the Slayer, and that's supposed to repulse Riley. Um, Like, she's being, like, what the Slayer's supposed to be, and, like, that's how he defeats the first that's how she defeats the first slayer is by not being what a slayer is supposed to stereotypically be like isolated and alone so the two um, is, yeah so this can, like both both things can work in concert yes yes and that and i and yeah. i do i i think that everyone brings up good points i do think that um i i think it's hard with these shows because it's like you know what was it 2000 um mm-hmm. I, because I don't think any, I mean, like, I'm positive that no one was thinking in those terms. Oh, yeah. I feel like none of that was done to be, like, you know. Well, 
but it was also an all white writers room and like right, you know i mean like i i think and i think that even then like i'm sure there were people who saw this and were like this is racist very basic level it is the magical negro right it oh, is yeah. like white people don't know anything about the world but like people of color specifically black people are very tied to mysticism and you never know what they're gonna know and like if you um are good enough like the the black person will share their knowledge about the world with you and i mean it's just tied into all these colonial colonial notions about that like black people are magical well note note that when tara is revealed as the spirit guide in the desert finally they put her in a sari yeah it's like a converted like sari inspired outfit but like it's definitely like i'm mystical now here's my like ethnic outfit like it's a very weird it's the Occident versus the Orient. Let's go back to the beginning of Buffy's dream sure, yeah. and go through it. Um, so it starts in Buffy's room, and it is very explicitly talking about Dawn. You have the clock reading 730, which is a reference to Faith's counting down from 730. Be back before Dawn. I, my, actually, my favorite part of that, and it does relate to what we're talking about, is when, she, when Tara holds out the Manus hand and Buffy says, I'm never going to use that. Yeah. That's actually my favorite part of that little scene because I think it's like it's this weird thing where Buffy thinks that she only needs physical strength and then like the whole thing of season five is that she is going to dive into like the history of what it means to be the Slayer and she talks right. a lot about how she needs her friends but at the very beginning of the dream she's like no I don't need mysticism I just need to like beat shit up with my hands. Yes. <laughs> So then Buffy goes to the initiative and sees Riley and human Adam, pre-Adam human man. Um, And actually one of my favorite things, I mean, because this whole moment is, as I was saying before, is about Buffy's relationship to patriarchy and all these things. And my favorite kind of, besides them talking about wars, is when they say that they're naming things because it's such a like masculine thing to say like they're sitting around naming stuff. Yeah. It also harkens to the, the colonial aspects of, um, like, the, the colonialism inherent in, like, the portrayal of the Slayer. Well, it's also, like, with the initiative, right? Like, they would give these names to demons, like, like hostile, hostile terrestrials right? and yeah. stuff like that. And, or Spike is HSC-17. But they already have names. Right. And that is, isn't that, like, the metaphor for colonialism? Like, you go in and you find things and you give them your own names, but they already have names and cultures and values and stuff like that. So Joss in the commentary says how Willow and Tara, when they're discussing Miss Kitty Fantastico, are talking Mm -hmm. about the name hasn't come to them yet. The cat hasn't told them its name, while Riley and Adam are talking specifically about giving names right not waiting to hear what yeah the name is. and Just he said that it. Yeah. he said that's like the feminine versus the masculine like uh he said like that someone on the internet pointed out that that could be interpreted that way like he didn't actually do that on purpose but that it very Shocker. much couldn't read that way <laughs> um yeah i don't know i thought that was interesting because like you know riley and adam are like quote men like in the yeah army. i mean i think a, i think a lot of the things in this episode that we're talking about are probably not on purpose the scene of Riley with the gun, I thought that was supposed to be, like, an on-purpose, like... Because, I mean, for me, it's, like, ang- it's like pointing at Buffy. Yeah, like, the way... Mm-hmm. I thought that was supposed to be on purpose, but Joss even just says, oh, and that's a cool shot. It that to me because we see handguns very rarely on this show. Yeah. Like, it's just not... Yeah. Like, we like the, the initiative has, like, their little assault rifle things, but, like, apart from uh, 
the lady cop who's part of the Order of Taraka in the Bianca yeah. Lawson episodes. Mm-hmm. I don't think, and Warren, obviously, at the end of season six, I don't think we see handguns otherwise because it's such a mundane weapon. Like, there are it's a such a others. human weapon. You know what I mean? There are a few others when the police come. Like, at the yeah, end of yeah, I guess. When yeah. Snyder calls the police on Buffy. I do love the scene, the like transition of her walking through, and then there's the sand, and then she's in the mm-hmm. desert. Uh, I think that's all really cool. Um, it's something I forgot to point out in the beginning. When Willow looks out the window, he says in the commentary, they brought a wall into the desert and had her in the desert to look out the window. That way it looked like she actually was in the desert. Yeah, I, I wondered that because it doesn't look like a green screen shot. Yeah. Like it looks like... Um, and part of why this episode works so well is because it's mostly practical effects. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and Joss even says that that's one of his favorite shots of the show is Buffy walking out in the desert and then just because he said normally you know which is true everything was on a really tiny set they never actually shot on a location um whenever they did something like this and they would only have three walls but this they got to say hey look we're actually here in the desert the other thing really quickly um is that riley calls buffy a killer and i think it's supposed to be how he misunderstands not only does the the initiative misunderstand demons but he misunderstands her and Mm -hmm. kind of foreshadows where that's going because there's been a long conversation mostly between Buffy and Faith uh, between whether you know when Faith kills someone Buffy says like you're not a you know we're not killers we're slayers and then back when she comes back in season four there's another thing where Buffy I think it's Faith as Buffy says like I'm not a killer I'm the slayer and then for him to just call her a killer like hey killer right Right, yeah. and it, and and it's just like very demeaning to to who she is, and a misunderstanding of like what she's supposed to be doing. Well, and what's interesting is that it's Buffy's projection of Riley because it's her dream, right? So it's like right. her. It's almost her fear that he sees her only as a tool. And then where does Buffy's dream so then go? They're, they're in the desert. Well, then, well, we talked a lot about the desert, yeah. but we'll talk about what happens. I mean, at least talk about the no friends, just the kill. And then, of course, like you have their their actual physical confrontation, and which is like straight out of like the Oristia. It's like this, the yeah. end, like the cyclical a train cycle, or this the end to and a train cycle of violence. And with Buffy, of course, being this like the like a like a like the a paragon of whiteness in a lot of ways being like, no, I will now institute order. Like, in the Orestia, it's like the institution of democracy. Yes. In, in, in this case, this confrontation um, is, is, is more or less the N2A cycle and the, the adoption of, like, an alternative way of life or an alternative uh, family. Yeah, but the connotations are still, like, incredibly unsettling when you have that, like, black-white dichotomy. That yeah. They I wanted to point out I really like the fight scene. I think it's, like, a pretty, like, well-shot fight it's filmed well for sure yeah and joss actually mentions mentions when they're rolling down the hill that they only got one take on that oh that's interesting yeah oh. well i imagine the dress was ruined <laughs> yeah that's what he said he was like because everyone got real dirty what was your favorite wh- which was your favorite cheese man moment mine is i made a space for the cheese slices Mine is, oh, mine is, uh, uh, it's, it's not, uh, I'm wearing the cheese, the cheese does not wear me. That's my favorite, too. <laughs> I need, I need a t-shirt, uh, with that on it pronto. So anyway, um, out mine... there, remember, pink montage <laughs> and that t-shirt, Hanukkah. All right, good. Um, mine is also, I made a space for the cheese slices. Uh, Ian, do you want to ask our usual questions? Um, well, also I wanted to ask everyone their favorite dream sequence. Which one of them, which one of the four was your favorite? Uh, Connor? 
Um, in terms of like the beautiful set pieces and stuff, probably Willows. But like in terms of the the narrative, probably Buffy's. Okay. Uh, Je. Um, Willows for completely superficial reasons. Um, just because I think it just be the sentimentality of the or like the sentiment. No, the sentimentality of me being able to identify as a young queer person when I first saw the episode. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I think in terms of, like, uh, I guess, like, the like complexity, I would have to say Xander's, but I'm reluctant to say that because I do not like Xander at all. <laughs> that was why I was like, mm, no. Matthew? Yeah. Um, I think that Buffy's is probably most relevant to the series overall, but my favorite is Xander's. I think it's the most well-written and most layered and complex. Yeah. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I like all of them. For me, it's like a pretty close race between Buffy, Willow, and Xander, but I have to go with Willow because same. That is three of the four dreams, Ian. Yeah, and Giles' is only like three minutes. (laughs) Well, no, that's what I meant, because I didn't want to say all of them, because then if I say all of them, I don't, I think Giles is clearly the weakest. But I think the oh, other yeah. three are all, like, super strong. Um, so, okay, so favorite scene. In four words or less, everyone. Connor. Um, uh, probably the um, the Xander and, and Principal Snyder sequence. Okay. J.E.? Um, I would have to say the opening scene in Willow's dream sequence because I think it's so beautifully done. It's so beautiful. Oh, okay, Matthew? Mine is Xander and Joyce. Okay. Mine is a tie between Willow in the classroom or the Death of a Salesman play, cause just because I love those oh, scenes. So Favorite outfit, J.E.? Ooh, that's hard. Come back to me. Okay, Connor? Um, Favorite outfit? I think that... that- Mine is... This is a hard one because it's not really like a fashion-y episode and they all wear like 50 different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the like dumb porn outfits that Xander puts Willow and Terry just because it's like so funny. Like I just think that like it's such a it's just such a funny idea. They're not good outfits, but like the, the sudden jump cut to like them in the back like, oh, hey, big boy, like makes me laugh. <laughs> oh. oh, actually, you know what my favorite outfit in this episode is? It's Joyce's like sexy red lingerie. Oh, I think she, I oh think that's mine. Looks, I think Christine Southern looks fucking amazing in this episode. And like that she she fucking rocks that outfit. Um, I'm going to go with uh, Buffy's uh, Sally Bowles drag. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty and- good. And um, I actually really do like the Slayer's, or like the first Slayer's hair. Okay. So, that's oh, her. I like her whole Slayer. outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah the whole outfit. Really, it's like, um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's too, it's, I, I uh, All right, we have four words or less for these answers, guys. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Matthew, you can now talk about Joyce's outfit being your favorite. Um... Oh, no, it's, I mean, yeah, it's okay. it's Joyce. So mine is also Buffy's Death of a Salesman 50s <laughs> outfit, because it's just so absurd. And, like, I don't know, it works for her. Um, all right, she so yeah. now we're grading the episode. Uh, Connor, what do you grade the episode? We grade from what? A to F. Oh, um... I mean, I would give this one an A as like a, as an episode. I mean, it has problems that we've talked about, but as an episode of Buffy, it's one of the best for sure. Cool. Jay, 
Oh, I'm going to give it an A plus, but an F for racism. Okay. But yeah. A plus, but, um, <laughs> or or you should get an A for racism because it succeeds at it. Yeah, so well. no, you're right. Yeah. It's like 100% racism. It, it is. It's really good at me. You're right. You guys are right. Um, and Ian, I will say this is also, I didn't say it before, but this is also my second favorite uh, episode. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, uh, Matthew, did you grade it? I can't even remember now. <laughs> no, I just, well, I would give it an A. Okay. I give an A plus because I, yeah. Um, okay. You didn't tell me we could do plus, so I... I well, yeah. Connor, this is an ongoing <laughs> battle on this podcast. I think that the A to F scale does not include A pluses. I agree. So an A to me is perfect. That's like, are we going S rank? Like, it's a video game? Like, come on. Don't, I don't think inside the box, so... All right. Thank you, everyone, for being <laughs> on for Restless. If you want to follow our podcast on Twitter, we are at SlayerFestX98. If you want to follow Matthew on Twitter, we are, he is at Matthew Rodriguez, one T, a G, and a Z. If you want to follow Ian, he's on Twitter at IanXCarlos. And Connor, where can they find you? Uh, I am on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon, which is, I know it's hard. It's like a Kate Bush lyric. But if you just search Connor Goldsmith, there aren't that many of us because it's like a weird, like half Irish, half Jewish name. <laughs> and J.E., where can they find you? You can find me at J.E. Reich Writes at, uh, yeah, on Twitter and Instagram. And, All right, and if you and thank you so much for having me, this was a lot of fun. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry I talked so much. Thank you both no, for no, joining no. us. And, <laughs> yeah, and thank then, you so for next week, yeah. next week after this episode, we'll have our season four recap. So make sure to tune in for that, and, and we'll talk about to, everything that happened in season four. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud, and uh, rate our podcast on iTunes if you're feeling crazy and if you love us. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see everyone next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.